on today's Encore Compassion Radio. I don't like it, and I've certainly offered my consulting services to the Almighty on numerous occasions. Been rebuffed every time. Strange you would pay for that advice. <laughs> when you hear it from God, no is a complete sentence. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, but he didn't ask me to be a consultant. Mm. He invited me to trust him. Yeah. Can I trust him with Gracie? Can I trust him when I'm playing at Mike's funeral? Can I trust him on these other things in this world with devils filled? Yeah. And how do I know that? Because of the cross. You can learn a lot from suffering, I'm afraid. And life just seems to be very willing to help you learn that way. Hi, I'm Bram Floria, and this is Compassion Radio, the daily radio journal of God's people getting it done, even when it doesn't feel like the thing you want to do. The best among us wade right in when the rest of us have a hard time even stepping up. A prime example of that is Peter Rosenberger, our good friend and guest again for this series looking at the aftermath of the massacre at Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. This was Peter and Gracie's home church for many years, and the tragedy was personal, raw, and haunting. Still is. But God also prepared them for real ministry in the wake, and we'll hear more about that today. We'll pick up the conversation with a brief recap as Peter explains what caregiving really means for those who truly suffer, physically and spiritually. We've had to do a lot of wound care with Gracie over the years. Mm-hmm. When you see an angry wound, what comes to your mind, and, and you see a wound that is very inflamed, mm-hmm. you see a wound that has maybe a lot of pus or drainage, it's kind of pretty rough, and I've had to change dressings on those things, yeah. we've had to irrigate stuff out, it's been pretty rough. Yeah, There's still a wound, there's still a wound. And if you are put off by the rage and all that kind of stuff, and you can't see the wound, mm. then you probably need to step back a little bit and let yeah. others who can do that because there are wonderful nurses and doctors who specialize in wound care and they don't freak out over this stuff Yeah, because this is their job. They understand I am to go into this wound and I know how to take this wound and deal with it so that it goes to here to be healthier tissue. Now there'll always be a scar. Yeah, And Gracie has a lot of scars that we have nursed back on her body that were horrific wounds to have to dress and all that kind of stuff. And they had to heal from the inside out. But as long as you keep wrapping bandages over it because it makes it look more palatable, Mm. all you're doing is depriving it of the necessary air it needs to be able to heal. Mm. That's the way it is with our spiritual lives, I believe, in our hearts. When we face these kinds of things, as long as we kind of try to button it all up and make it look presentable, we're robbing that person of the opportunity to get the air they need to be able to heal. Air is essential to healing and clean water. When Gracie had a post-op infection in her back, they had to open her up every three days. This has went on for about two months, and they had to irrigate it out with saline solution. Hmm. Otherwise, that infection is still there. They had to make sure it was completely gone, and saline was the, the stuff, the salt. Yeah. And all of a sudden, these things in the Scripture, when you are the salt of the earth, I mean, all these things start to make sense if you put it in that context and you realize, oh, Here's yet another way that we can come in gently to this, but confidently. I've watched nurses treat Gracie over the years who come into this situation with wounds and everything else, and they are extremely compassionate, but very confident Mm. in their job. They know what to do. And the problem is, is if you're letting a first-day nurse treat a 30-year problem, you got a lot of potential hazards there. Yeah. You know, I don't let kids in school starting off their career in medical school come in there and start working on Gracie. 
Mm-hmm. This is a very complex thing that requires an enormous amount of care and education and precision and so forth. Well, how much wisdom, more yeah. so? Yeah, and wisdom, experience. Well, how much more so when you're dealing with something like this, when you have people being slaughtered, you mm-hmm. have mental illness, you've got politics, you've got this, this, this. And if you just kind of walk in there ham-fisted, this is what we ought to do kind of thing, it's going to create carnage. I've had doctors that have come in to Gracie's situation and bluster about like Clydesdales, and they got it wrong, and she had to pay the price for it. And so now when I have people that come in like that, I always put my hand up. I had some guys that came in when she had this surgery, rehab guys, and we need to move her to rehab. She's still in critical care. She's still got a tube down her throat. She's unconscious, and they're wanting to move her into rehab. And I said, hey, guys, you're out over your skis. Slow down. You don't know this patient. I do. And how many pastors, how many counselors, how many people, how many Christians, how many believers get out over their skis? Hmm. They want to prophesy over people. They got a word from the Lord for them. They got this. They got this. I look at it as the three S's of ministry. And I learned this from nurses that took care of Gracie when she seized one time. And it was just a God-awful event. I applaud your wife because she's much cooler under pressure than I am with that sort of thing. This was a long time ago. And I watched it and Gracie was thrown up. It was just awful. And it got all over me, the nurses, everything else. And I watched something when she blacked out, they cleaned her up. First off, they kept her from hurting herself. Mm-hmm. So from flailing out of the bed, and we held her down, even though she was projectile vomiting on us, we still yeah. held her down. And then after she blacked out, we started cleaning up. They changed the sheets, changed the gown. One of them even combed her hair. They had called the doctor by that time. Within 30 minutes, you'd have never known it had happened. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot from that. First off, they didn't try to fix Gracie. They called the doctor, mm-hmm. and there's a big difference. He changed up some things, got it all worked out, and everything was fine. But they were dressed for the job, too. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference, too. And if we're wearing the righteousness of Christ, it's not going to get on us. And they didn't try to argue with Gracie. There was no point. She's not in a position where she didn't have a conversation. She's having a grand mal seizure. So I look at this as the three S's for us as believers and those kinds of events, like what I just went to. You suit up with the righteousness of Christ, the armor of God things. I don't want to take the metaphor and make too much out of it, but but he tells us we put on Christ. Yeah, We show up. We're there. We're present. And then we shut up. Hmm. Suit up, show up, shut up. (laughs) It's not real complicated. They don't need my wisdom. They don't need me to opine on something. They need somebody to walk with them. And that's what God promises us in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thou art with me. That's the whole point. Peter, you gave me a a word picture that I had not really thought about when it comes to suiting up. Usually the image we get when we talk, we share, we preach about being clothed in righteousness is that it's our Sunday finest par excellence or to the nth degree in heaven where we're wearing the same robes that angels do kind of thing. And they're fancy. They're beautiful. They're better than the lilies of the field. All that kind of stuff kind of goes through your mind when you think about what it's like to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. When we take on that holiness set apart for God, what I'm seeing now is that these are work clothes. Absolutely. So work clothes. If we're going to be out there doing the work of God, we better be wearing the stuff that's going to be able to take the hit and that it's going to be able to deal with spillovers and splashes and burn marks and whatever else. But they're protective gear, too. They're meant to keep you safe while you're doing the work that he's called you to do. This clothing that Christ puts on us is really for preparing us to do and be Christ where he sent us to be. 
And yeah, that kind of clothing looks beautiful when you see someone coming at you, when you're in dire straits and someone comes rushing to you and they're in scrubs. It's very comforting. And, you know, I think about these ranchers out here in Montana where I live. They're not showing up in Brooks Brothers out out on the ranch to fix barbed wire fence or to to work with cattle or, you know, you don't do that. Right. You, You wear the right attire for the job. And you know what? That's the problem. We don't know what our job is as believers. A lot mm. of us, I yeah. didn't. And our job is to go into the muck. Yeah. Our job is to go into the mess because that's what he did for us. Look at what he put on for us. Yeah. He wore work clothes to come to rescue us. Yeah. And so we're wanting to put on finery and we need to put on Christ who. He who knew no sin became sin. He he condescended. He made himself lower than the angels, the book yeah. of Hebrews says. There's only a few word pictures that show up in the New Testament at all about the appearance of Jesus, and it's referred to his robe and the, the kind of things he wore, but there's never any embellishments in the descriptions of those items. There is a communication of the authority that somehow about either the talisman or the, the hem of the garment would indicate his authority to speak authoritatively on issues and be revered and be respected as a rabbi of note. But there's no physical descriptions of how beautiful or how mundane anything was about him. In fact, it's almost missing completely in action, which seems odd to us in a modern eye. We want to see the situation. We see what people are like. We want to know what they were wearing yeah, all that kind of stuff means something to us because we're very visual people. Back then, it may not have been normal to mention such a visual things. I don't know. It just seems clearly apparent that physical descriptions of Jesus are just missing in Scripture. At any rate, it seems if such word pictures were not important to the writers of the Gospels, what was important to observe, apparently, was how completely equipped he was to do the work of saving the world, and it was the work of God's love and action that was so beautiful to them. Those things were visible to those who had eyes that had been opened by the Spirit to see the spiritual reality all around us, to see Jesus for who he really was. The Apostle John readily admits a number of times that though it seemed obvious, though it seems obvious now, we were clueless when it was all happening. We couldn't understand what Jesus was up to, what Jesus was up to, even though he plainly told us. So, Peter When you are called into situations where you know full well that you're going to be God's agent of healing and help in a disaster, in a desperate situation, a crisis, or a medical emergency like you've done so many times, to be God's image bearer and his ambassador, to be, as you said, a shiva, to simply sit with those who mourn sometimes without interrupting, when no one else has has the patience to sit quietly and keep their mouth shut. Okay, Peter, when you went to Nashville— in the wake of the Covenant School tragedy, how did you know what to do and what not to do when you got there? You had asked, how do you know what the right thing to do is in a situation like that? I don't know. I don't know always what the right thing to do is. Sometimes you just do or the right series mm-hmm. of things. Sometimes you just do the next right thing. Just before Christmas, I traveled to Vietnam, a country we've long had on our radar for Bible projects. In fact, Norman Sherry Nelson did some pioneering work there 30 years ago, ferrying in batches of Bibles to the small but rapidly growing church in cities and hill tribe villages. I was astounded to discover that the early work had yielded tremendous fruit, opening doors we couldn't have even imagined three decades ago. 
For the first time in the history of communist Vietnam, Christians were now allowed to openly celebrate their faith and held two nationally permitted crusades in Ho Chi Minh City and Hanoi. I witnessed hundreds of Vietnamese Christian artists and evangelists sharing their faith with tens of thousands of their countrymen, including government officials who had until recently been persecuting the church. The window of opportunity for the gospel is open right now, and Bibles are allowed in. The churches are asking for them earnestly, so please send your best gift today to help us provide the Bibles they are begging for in 2023. Call us today at 1-800-868-2478 or give online at CompassionRadio.com. And please note our new mailing address, P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. That's Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. Please give generously, even sacrificially, right away. I know that God will be pleased if we do. Thank you. And now, back to our discussion. In the wake of the Covenant School tragedy, how did you know what to do and what not to do when you got there? You had asked, how do you know what the right thing to do is in a situation like that? I don't know. I don't know always what the right thing to do is. Sometimes you just do, or the right series Mm -hmm. of things. Sometimes you just do the next right thing. And I knew that the right thing in that situation is the same, the right thing in any situation as far as the next thing to do, which is Mm -hmm. lean on what I know. That's where my confidence is. You know, Paul says, for we know these things. And so I lean on that. I don't have to preach it. I just lean on it. And I can go into this situation confidently. We wail in grief, and we have all the gamut of the human condition, but something has to anchor us. Otherwise, we'll slide off the hill here and go into insanity and depression and despair. And uh, I go back to David at Ziklag, yeah. one of my absolute favorite stories in Scripture, mm-hmm. because his own men were picking up stones to kill him after the Amalekites took all of their possessions, all of their family, everything. Yeah. If they had a pet cat, they probably took that. And David is sitting there with his own men, 600 men, I think, ready to kill him. Hmm. And it says he encouraged himself in the Lord. So when I went down there, I encouraged myself in the Lord. And I played songs. Since 1985, I've played Hmm. a hymn at every funeral that I've ever played that I can remember. And I've played a lot of funerals. Hmm. And it was my uncle's funeral in 1985. He died of neurofibromatosis. He's in his late 30s. And it was the first time I ever really saw another caregiver up close, which was my aunt. And I'm still very close to her today. I just admire her greatly. And at that funeral, I did something that would set the tone for the rest of my life, every funeral. And I played Victory in Jesus. Yeah. But I play it slower, and I play it a little bit more reflective than what people are used to hearing it. I don't play it as a pep rally song. Yeah. There's a sense of deliberation, intentional victory. In Jesus, my Savior forever, because I have that victory. Christ said I had it through him. That's what scriptures tell me. So I'm going to stand on that. And I will stand on that with tears coming down my face. But I still stand on it because he says I can. Hmm. And I think for me, I don't always know the right thing. I just know the right one to trust. And I think Luther said that best. We're not the right man on our side. You know, this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. And yet that's the confidence that comes. 
And it doesn't mean that I go in in any way devoid of anguish. It just means I have a place for my anguish. The only place I can take it hmm. where it will be ministered to. Hmm. Yeah. And he said he came to heal the brokenhearted and bind up the wounded. Well, do we believe this or not? And if we do believe it, how will people know that we believe it? What will that look like? How was that walked out? And these are not things that you learn while the dirt is still fresh on the grave. These are things that take a long time, yeah. and it is our mandate, it is our privilege to minister to people in that and to walk with them. Because God sometimes, um, well, C.S. Lewis said this, he, he yells through our suffering. Pain is God's megaphone. He gets our attention through suffering. I don't particularly like it. He doesn't yell, but his voice is amplified in our suffering. I don't like it, and I've certainly offered my consulting services to the Almighty on numerous occasions. Been rebuffed every time. <laughs> Strange. You wouldn't pay for that advice. When you hear it from God, no is a complete sentence. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's so, but he didn't ask me to be a consultant. Mm. He invited me to trust him. Yeah. Can I trust him with Gracie? Can I trust him when I'm playing at Mike's funeral? Can I trust him on these other things in this world with devils filled? Yeah. And how do I know that? Because of the cross. Hmm. And I said this on my program the other day, when I see somebody who remains resolved in the midst of craziness, that always signifies to me somebody who has a deeper understanding of the cross hmm. than I do. Yeah, That's where I'm going, because I think that's what settles our hearts down. The more we understand the cross and what this means for us, the impact of this, the more we can face all these things with that sense of resolve ourselves. Scripture has a lot to say about enduring, fortifying, yeah. strengthening. Yeah, it does. It doesn't have a whole lot to say about you're going to be happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. But there's a lot of joy, joy, joy. <laughs> yeah, I heard a great teaching the other day when Jesus said, they hate me, they're going to hate you. Yeah. Okay? And he said, I'm going to send another helper. Mm. And we call that helper the Holy Spirit, but we call that helper the comforter. Mm -hmm. But I was listening to this teaching the other day. He said, that word in our English language has morphed mm -hmm. into something yes. else. In the original way that they understood this, when they translated that word to comforter, come fort. Yeah. Forte. Fort with forte, with strength. Yeah. What's your forte? What's your strength? Jesus didn't just send the sympathizer, yeah. the great consoler which we are sympathized with, we are empathized with, we are consoled with. But more than all of that, we are strengthened and equipped to endure. And that is a much different connotation. Yeah. It seems like the, even the Hebrew, going before the Greek versions of it, talked about when someone was comforted, they were barren, they had no children, whatever, and God comforted them by giving them offspring. That word then meant that what you hope for, the thing that would deal with your biggest fears or the biggest threats in your life would be taken care of. They would be fulfilled somehow by God's power. You are equipped. He provides. Yeah. All of these things start to come into play. And we don't think of that way. We think of you know Hallmark sympathy cards. Yeah, we do. I'm going to comfort you. I asked my congregation out here that I serve as a music minister, and they've gotten to know us a little bit over the years we've been out here. And, and I said, how many of you all would say that I need rest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can see the bags under your eyes, Peter. 
<laughs> yeah, anybody that sees me up close and personal knows how to dress. And they all raise their hands. Every mm. one of them raise their hands. And I said, how many of you all know what rest looks like mm. for me? And nobody knew what to say. Yeah. I said, I get sleep. I get eight hours of sleep every night. Is that rest? <laughs> it might be. And I said to them, rest and sleep are two different things. Yeah. Rest is that confidence that I know that I am not facing any of this alone. Yeah. And that, oh, death wears thy victory, grave wears thy sting. He tasted death for all of us that we wouldn't have to mm. as believers. That's the promise. Yeah. We are not permanently exiled to this. So when we leave this body, Scripture says to be absent of the body is present with the Lord. All of these promises, do we believe them or not? And if we don't anchor ourselves in that, what are we anchoring ourselves in? What does that look like? The question you're talking about, Peter, is encouraging people to dare themselves to ask that question. Am I willing to let God put that to the test, whether I truly believe these things or not? Are we giving him the right to observe us, to pass judgment on how well we have poured ourselves into him and allowed him to pour himself into us? Well, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. I just don't think we are saved to sit around in an enclave somewhere mm. and wait for the rapture. Yeah. You know, and there seems to be quite a few people that kind of think that way. Let's isolate ourselves all from this and, and just wait for Jesus to come back and take us home. Yeah. And I don't see anywhere in Scripture that supports that. No. I see that we are called to be light and salt yeah. to this world, to minister, to go into all the world and tell the good news and make disciples, which is to teach. And we teach through our words, we teach through our music, we teach through showing up yep. and just being. We suit up, show up, and shut up, and we can teach through that. And Peter has a lot of words to share with us about how to shut up. That's what no, I, I don't. Yeah. I have no words <laughs> of that. But I, I have a lot of admonitions that I've collected over the Fair years. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, what I appreciate about you, Peter, is that you're, you're there and you're raw and you're honest with us. And you, at the same time, seem to have an undercurrent of joy when a lot of people who are caregivers— who spend the majority of their time, if not every single minute of their time, caring for others, don't seem to possess. And you've allowed God to bring it to you. You've accepted that gift of joy in the midst of all this and see it for the treasure it really is. I'll put you to the task here at the end of our interview. We've been talking for a good hour or more, you and I, about you as a caregiver and an expert caregiver, one who speaks to this issue on a radio program every week across this nation, who have thousands of people listening to you to have hope for another day to keep hanging on to serve those that God's put in their lives. You've also been called to sit down, as we discussed, at the funeral of a good friend of yours from your home church back in Nashville, the Covenant Church. And that Presbyterian church and the school was the one that was attacked and it made national news. So that's our backdrop for this entire discussion. I want to ask you, Peter, as someone who knows better than most— how are you dealing with your own grief and your own, I can't believe this happened to my friends? How's God bringing you through that right now? Peter Rosenberger will be back with us tomorrow for more of this powerful story. I hope you'll tune in then.
If you believe hearing the good news from the front lines of faith builds your faith, then let us know today. Just visit our website, CompassionRadio.com, or call our toll-free order line, 1-800-868-2478. And please note our new mailing address, P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. That's Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. We'll see you tomorrow.